The warning, unfortunately, has been used, I should say, abused by religious folks probably ever since it was written. It's right here in Hebrews chapter 10 where we've been studying. And it's a warning that has been used, taken out of context, by the way, misinterpreted, by the way, and used particularly on brand new baby Christians or babes in Christ who are really not settled firmly in their minds on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, they heard the good news. You know, the good news that if you trust Jesus, you don't have to go to hell. Which later, kind of, it kind of waters down to, if you trust Jesus, you might not have to go to hell if you behave yourself. Now, if you don't behave yourself, no guarantee. That's not good news. I have never thought of that as being good news. You know why? Because I've never been able to behave myself. And neither of you. So that ain't good news. Part of the watering down process of the Gospel back in the days that Hebrews was written, but as well as today, part of that process was try to scare people into obedience to a particular religious law system, one sort or another. It's kind of the idea that if you don't do what we tell you you ought to do as a Christian, then you might go to hell. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do as a Christian and behave yourself and live your life like I'm telling you to live your life, then you're probably going to die and go to hell. And nobody wants to go to hell. So it's a scare tactic that is used. And this particular passage we're coming upon now is one of the famous scare passages. Let me just read it to you and see if you get a shiver or not. Okay. See if you get scared or not. Hebrews chapter 10. After calling us into a lifestyle of grace and truth, our author warns us here, beginning in verse 26. He says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose you, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted 
the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done desperate unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Anybody get scared? A little nervous? Like, oh man. The first thing that got me on this years ago when I first studied it was that every sin I do is a willful sin. As well as a whole bunch of other accidental sins. As a Christian, I don't know when he says, if we sin willfully, that's the way we sin. We sin willfully. So is there any hope? Now I want you to note, first of all, that this willful sin he's talking about is not a specific transgression of God's law. Well, I lied to that guy last night. Well, I jumped on that boy's wife the other day. Well, I did this for that or the other. That's not the willful sin he's talking about. He'll come back to the willful sin again in chapter 12. The willful sin he is talking about is not a specific act or transgression against God's law. The willful sin he's talking about is that same sin, as he says in chapter 12, that so easily besets us. It's that willful sin that we're all used to. So without getting real technical with you, I'm going to define it for you. The sin, singular, as used in the Bible doesn't talk about specific behaviors. That's not what it's referring to. When the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about something much deeper than specific behaviors. It's talking about the root of all the behavioral sins. It's talking about unbelief. See, when Jesus comforted his disciples concerning the role of the Holy Spirit in this age, in this world, he said when he comes, he'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not. See, the willful sin is refusing to believe what God said is true. That's all. And underneath that willful sin, or because of that willful sin, underneath it all comes all the behavioral dysfunction. Because we didn't believe what God said was true. Now, the second thing I want you to note is that he is here writing to believers. 
what we day, today call Christians. He's writing to people who have believed that Jesus is their personal Savior and have been born again. And he's explaining the trap and warning, warning us against that trap that all of us as believers fall into. So we need to be aware of it. Understand the consequences of our willful sin. So if we sin willfully, the first thing he tells us is there's no more sacrifice for sins. You can't look to something else besides what God has done in Christ to make up. I know a lot of people that are so guilt-motivated over the years. I've seen him. I had a, a fellow who was in an adulterous relationship. And he came to me for counseling. And That's his name. You know what God says about this. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. What he's going to do, right? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I know that this church, I was pastoring a church back in Colorado, I know that this church is struggling for money and needs Sunday school supplies. So I'm writing out a $1,000 check for this church. I couldn't take it. There's a thousand bucks. Twenty years, thirty, forty years ago now, that was a lot of money. I couldn't take it because he was trying to figure out what he was going to do about his adultery. He was trying to figure out because he already knew the consequences. It was a willful sin. But he was trying to figure out how he's going to make up for it by doing a religious good work. A lot of people do that. And, unfortunately, there's a lot of religious leaders that take advantage of that and promote that. That's why they twist the Scripture out of context to scare people. Guilt-motivated folks will give you about anything you want. Now, our author goes on to say here, what does remain, since there's no more sacrifice, there's, no much, there's not another way to deal with sin than what he's described as the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. There's no other way. He goes on to tell us what the consequences of the willful sin really are. Notice he says again, verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That sounds pretty gruesome, doesn't it? Sounds pretty scary. And the implication that the religious folks use is that if you commit a willful sin, which I'm going to tell you you already have, okay. If you commit a willful sin, 
then all you've got to look forward to is judgment and fiery indignation. Anybody ever hear of a hellfire and damnation preacher trying to scare people into obedience? Hmm? Where it comes from. Yeah, they twist this all up. Well, what's he really saying? Look, if you fail to believe what God says is true, what He's done for you in Christ, if you fail to believe everything we've been studying so far, you got nothing left. He's the only one that can deal with sin. You can't. Nobody else can. He's the only one. And if you fail to believe that, essentially you're on your own. Now let's clear something up right away. Because I don't want to scare you too bad. If you fail to believe in what Jesus did for you, you deny Him, He cannot deny Himself. And He's already done it for you. What does that mean? That means you don't have to worry about going to hell because of your willful unbelief. You don't have to worry about it. In fact, I can almost guarantee this, that if you're worried about going to hell, having God judge you, if you're worried about that, it's a pretty good sure sign that you're a believer that's not going to hell. Because you know the only people who worry about going to hell are Christians. The non-Christians out there, they don't worry about going to hell. Only Christians worry about going to hell. So if you're worried about going to hell, pretty good sign that you're a Christian. Now remember who he's writing to here. He's writing to the Hebrews in the first century who had trusted Jesus as their personal Savior, who began to live out that lifestyle of grace and truth under exceptional circumstances of persecution. And after a while, they began to fade and began to fall away. That's what he's describing here. What Paul called fallen from grace. Now if you're fallen from grace, you had to be in grace to start with, right? And in grace, you were saved. And in grace, you received eternal life. And in grace, you became a child of God. And in grace, you are one with Christ. And in grace, you are righteous as Christ. Amen. That doesn't change. Uh, but your lifestyle does. Anybody know someone who is a Christian, besides yourself, of course, that is a Christian but doesn't always live like it? 
Just look around. <laughs> David, a man after God's own heart in the Old Testament, which you were in the New Testament, we call him Christian. When he lusted after Bathsheba, committed adultery and perjury and murder, didn't look like a Christian, did he? But he was. See, it's quite possible for you to be a Christian and not live like it. And that's what our author is concerned with here. Well, how do you live like a Christian? That's what he's been trying to teach us. You live under the new covenant of grace. You enter into that new covenant of grace by faith. Faith in what God says He's done to make you to be a brand new person. You are sustained in that new lifestyle of grace by the hope that is produced in you when you believe. And it is expressed, this new lifestyle you have in Christ is expressed by your love one for another. It's a simple lifestyle, folks. It's not complicated. There aren't a whole bunch of rules and regulations to it. There's only one commandment. That new commandment that Jesus gave us to love one another just like He loved us. Now granted, that's a supernatural commandment that requires the personal leadership and power of the Spirit working in and through you. But that's the opportunity you have in the lifestyle of grace and truth. To actually live like Jesus lived. Can't get any better than that. Now, our author is warning people who have fallen away from that lifestyle. Just like Paul warned the Galatians when they fell away from grace as a lifestyle and went back under their old law system. And the critical thing he mentions there as soon as you turn away from grace with that willful sin of unbelief, as soon as you quit believing who God said He made you to be, as soon as you quit believing you're empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit personally, as soon as you quit relying on that and believing on that, you make Christ of none effect. What does that mean? You're on your own. And it's really a pity. I've seen a lot of Christians on their own. Did you know that? Yep. I've seen them. Trying as hard as they can. Sweat dripping off their brows. Trying hard to be a good Christian. It's a miserable life miserable way to live. Why? Because they're afraid. You see, when you refuse to believe and enter into that lifestyle of grace and truth, you're on your own. You've got to live in this world with all of its dangers, all of its threats, all of its opposition, in your own strength, wisdom, and power. You have to rely entirely upon your own knowledge 
of good and evil. What's right and wrong? Every decision you make in this life comes down to your own decision according to your own knowledge of what's right and wrong. You know, that's, that's like eating that forbidden fruit in the garden. Remember what God told Adam? In the day you eat thereof, you shall what? Surely die. Now you're not going to die physically and go to hell. And even when you do die physically, you're not going to hell. That's not the point he's making here. He is not at all concerned about your destiny here. He's not concerned about whether you're going to heaven or hell when you die. That's not at play here in these verses at all. What he's concerned with is how you live today. The life that God has provided for you, or are you going to do it on your own? Now can you imagine this? You turn away from God's offer of a lifestyle of grace and truth through unbelief. Then what's left? A certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation. Man, you're scared. You're back in that fearful state again. And that fearful state is deep. It's profound. And it's pervasive. Every human being has this fear of God. They're afraid of Him. So when you're afraid of God, think about it a minute, when you're afraid of God that He is somehow going to get you, you're always looking over your shoulder, wondering whether God's going to bless you or curse you. When you're afraid of God, what are you really afraid of? You're afraid of all goodness and righteousness. You're afraid of love and compassion. See, when you're afraid of God, which is that fearful thing he talks about here, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's talking about being afraid of God. That's a miserable condition. It's terrible. Because it's all up to you. If that dog pees on me, you're in trouble. I don't know if our online audience can see that or not. Hey, it's the church in the woods. Being afraid of God is a miserable condition because you're left to your own devices. You're left to your own performance. You're left to your own knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. You're left to knowing what's best. You're on your own. It's, it's the condition of misery. That fear of God, that being afraid of God, so you don't confuse it with being having a respect for God, being afraid of God is at the root of all human dysfunction. And the reason you're afraid of God is because of unbelief. The reason you're afraid of God is the same reason 
Adam and Eve were afraid of God after they ate that knowledge of good and evil fruit and hid themselves and tried to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves. Try to wear fig leaves for a weekend. See what happens. See, being afraid of God is a miserable state because you miss out. You miss out on His provisions in grace for you. You see, being saved from the guilt and penalty of our sin, being saved from hell is not the issue here. He's not talking about whether you're going to go to hell or not. What he's telling you is that willful sin of unbelief when we refuse to trust what God has done for us in Christ puts us in hell right now. We're miserable now. That's so easy. You know, when he, he gave this warning, the original people he was writing this letter to, the Hebrews, were suffering. They were suffering terribly. They were being persecuted. They were being ripped off. They were being told that they were outcasts. That they had no part in society. They were kicked out of the synagogue, which for a Jew in that day, you would lose your job, you lose your family, you lose everything. And there were some who were persecuted because they were companions of those people. You see, it was a miserable state that they were faced with. And they got the idea that, okay, we believed in Jesus, and now we're experiencing suffering and persecution. Maybe we need to go back to the lifestyle we had before, and that'll save us. Our author is warning us against that right now. Because as soon as you enter any, into any kind of suffering, you know what your first thought is? Your first thought is, how am I going to get myself out of this? Your first thought, and it may not come in that exact term, that could come up, well, why did this happen to me? Why do I have to experience it? Why do I have to suffer? Your first thought is not a thought of grace and truth concerning God providing for you and caring for you, your first thought and unbelief is what you're going to do and how you're going to fix it. You wind up in misery. You wind up absolutely miserable. And the main reason is you can't fix it. But if you believe, as our author is going to go on here in the rest of the verses of this chapter to tell us, if you believe you're a brand new person under the new covenant, if you believe your faith will produce in you a hope, a joyful, confident expectation about your future, which gives you the endurance you need to continue until you're finally delivered.
That's a lifestyle of grace. It's a lifestyle of hope. So let's just go ahead and conclude the chapter here real quick. I'm just going to read the verses to you. Because I like the way he kind of changes gear here. He says, where we left off, verse 32, he says, But call to remembrance the former days, in which after you were illuminated, what does that mean? After the Spirit enlightened you to the truth of the Gospel. What God had done for you, you couldn't do for yourself in the person of Christ. After you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction, partly while you were made a gazing stop, or you were made out to be a laughing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have received, or you have in heaven, a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For you had a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Who's he talking about there? Some people say, oh, that's Jesus coming back. No. That's the promise of the Comforter that you receive when you believe. The Holy Spirit will comfort you in the middle of your trials. He will come to you as Jesus promised. He, the Father, and Jesus will come to abide with you. For you have need of patience, endurance, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just, that's you, shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You see, it's a matter of identity here, folks. You're not unbelievers. You're believers. You've trusted Jesus. And yeah, it was probably set in the context of you trusted Jesus because you didn't want to have to go to hell. But you trusted Him. And the Spirit did a miracle inside of you. He made you a brand new person, a child of God. He indwelled you and empowered you. He comforted you because of that faith. It is that same faith that you continue to exercise daily. So I'm just like you guys when I get up in the morning, especially before I have that cup of coffee. All the issues my life hit me. Things I should have done, things I should do. 
things I don't want to do. They all come rushing in. And my mind naturally goes to how I'm going to fix that. I want you to try this little exercise with me this week. First thing when you get up in the morning, you ask God, the Father. You ask Him to remind you that's the job of the Spirit, part of your comfort, to remind you of who He has made you to be. To remind you that you are not a victim. You're a victor. In fact, more than a conqueror. To remind you that you are God's child in whom He is well pleased. To remind you of everything that God has done to make you that brand new person you really are. Now, I know there's a fight there. That willful sin of unbelief, it's going to be there too. You're going to want to blow off everything I've just talked about. That's natural. Don't condemn yourself over that. That's normal because you yet live in a physical body with flesh in it of unbelief. But persevere. Endure. Ask Him simply in faith to remind you of who you are and why you're here. That simple faith, and you check me out on this, that simple faith will produce in you a joyful, confident expectation about your future. You will know that you're going to be okay. You're not going to lose. And that is your first step into this grace as a lifestyle. That's your first step. By faith, we have access into this grace wherein we stand. Don't let a day go by without you consciously choosing. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what other people say. You consciously choose to believe the truth of the Word of God. What He says is true about you. And that hope will be there. And it will release you to be able actually to love other people just like Jesus. It will release you to get on with fulfilling your purpose for being here and loving other people. People you live with, people you work with, people you run into. It's a brand new lifestyle, folks, of grace and truth. Try it out. Let's pray. Father God, as we come into your presence right now, I thank you. I praise you for this new lifestyle you've given us in your son Jesus. I thank you for the privilege we have of entering into that lifestyle. And I ask you to make it real to us now, Father, as we trust you with our lives to direct us, 
Guide us into all truth and empower us to love one another even as you loved us. For these things I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 